Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, and we'll look this morning at verses 16 through 18. And the title of today's sermon is The Favored Possession of God. We, we will look at this idea of being God's possession, God's people, those who are set apart by the Lord through the work of Christ. Um, the journey through this book of Malachi, I believe, is quite compelling. We, we have seen the Lord press deeply into the hearts of his people to call them out for their sinful wickedness, to point out to them that, that they are not walking in and according to his will, but rather they are in sin, and as those in sin, they are under his judgment. Just last week, we saw how these people of God, the, the chosen people of God, Israel, had kind of come up against the Lord. They had arrogantly pushed back against the Lord. They had defrauded and robbed the Lord in their giving of tithes and offerings. And we saw how that ties into the whole of our lives. The Lord just keeps pressing in at the heart. And this heart-revealing instruction is really the, the primary instruction, the primary point, the primary focus of Malachi's prophecy. The Lord is continually driving to the heart. And coming to the end of chapter 3, uh, chapter 4 is, is very short, so we're really turning the corner here at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. We're turning the corner and seeing the Lord's conclusion to this prophecy, how he points out to his people that though you are sinful, though your sins are many, he vividly shows them a picture of his favor, of his faithfulness and of his grace. His favor, we'll note in the text before us today, is to those who are pure in heart. So if we want to be the favored possession of God, we must look at this text and understand that we must be pure in heart. So with that, let's look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. I'll ask if you're able that you would stand with me as we read the Lord's word together. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, this is the holy and inerrant, inspired word of God. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and may he write it on our hearts. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord's throne of grace in a word of prayer. Our God, you are high in the heavens, exalted over all things, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the Holy One, the Righteous One, the One who always was, who always is, and who always will be. Lord, may your name be glorified in, by, and among your people today. 
As we come to your word, Lord, we desire that we would see just a glimpse of your glory, a glimpse of your promises to and for us, a glimpse of your commands, a a glimpse of the finished and completed work of Christ. Lord, our prayer and our desire is that you would show us Christ through the preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, would you direct our hearts and our minds right now in this very time to be attentive and to be humble and to be receptive to your truth. Lord, if you do not write your word upon our hearts, if your spirit does not move in our hearts and compel us to repent and to turn from sin and to flee after Christ, If you don't accomplish that work today, Lord, we have gathered in vain. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are humble and eager and ready to receive and respond to the truth. Lord, it's only by your Spirit's working that we can accomplish our goal and our desire of being conform to Christ through the preaching and teaching and the authority of your word. So Lord, I beg you, I ask you that you would that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would be glorified in us. I ask Lord that you would help us to be stripped away from the cares and the desires of the world. That you would lift our gaze to that great horizon where we see Christ and where we see the eternal promises that you have given us perfectly fulfilled. Lord, I ask that you would write your word upon our hearts, that you would show us our Savior and make us like him. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to our text today, what you'll notice, I think what might be one of the first things to jump out is this is a short text. It's only three verses that make up this paragraph, but it is so full of truth. It's so full of encouragement. It's so full of exhortation. I think this is really... As we studied through the book of Malachi, probably the most encouraging set of verses in the entire prophecy. Even looking at the verses next week, this is so encouraging to see the promise of God that we will be his people, that we will be his possession, that we will be joint heirs with our very Savior. So that's really the the climax of this text is to see that we are joint heirs with Christ. That the Lord comes and makes us alive because Christ died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. That's what we see. That's the glory of the text before us. And again, this is a clear dividing line in this book as the Lord moves towards this conclusion. 
And I would put before you that the positive response that we see outlined in this text is the only proper response to what we have witnessed in the last number of weeks as we've studied through this prophecy of the Lord through Malachi. We have repeatedly been warned as the Lord has rebuked the Israelites. We ourselves have been warned by witnessing the coldness and the hardness of their hearts. So the question is, will you heed the Lord's word? Will you find a place, will the Lord find a place in your heart to plant his word and to water it and to cause it to bear fruit? Will you receive the word with a hard heart where the word cannot penetrate because you reject it? Or will the Spirit of God work in your heart today and draw you to repentance? Dear friend, whether you have walked with the Lord for 60 years, whether you have walked with the Lord for six weeks, or whether you are not in Christ at all, this word is for you on this day. So hear the word of God. For Israel, this was a line of distinction. It's a line in the sand because the Lord has pressed upon them, pressing all the way to the heart to show them their sin and to show them their wickedness. And I pray that we don't have those same hearts as Israel. So perhaps today this is a line of distinction because the Lord just wants to draw you to a deeper walk with Him. He wants to fill you up with the joy of serving and walking with your Master and your Savior. But perhaps this is a point of decision because you are battling with worldliness. Perhaps this is a point of decision because you are full of the worldly desires, the the cares of this world. You are chasing after the desires of your flesh, and the Lord is warning you. The Lord is calling you, hear my word, repent of your sin, and come be my choice possession. If that's your place today... I plead with you and I beg you to allow the Word of God to find a place in your heart. This is the Lord's Word. This is His call to His choice people. And He sets forth these examples of how they are to be those who fear Him, who esteem Him, who live righteously and who serve Him. And as we think about that, let's direct our minds firstly, before we get any further, to why we strive like this and we don't worry about falling off into this heresy of legalism. We do that because Christ Himself is our peace. He has reconciled us to Himself through the blood of His cross. Christ came and lived a perfect life and He died on the cross bearing the curse of our sin. He took the punishment so you could know God's mercy. And so as we press on this idea of holy living, let's press on the idea of holy living, knowing that the ultimate justification comes only through Christ and His work. But we must not become cold-hearted or or dull of hearing and dull in our minds when we consider that Christ has earned our complete justification. He has done that, but there is but one proper response. We are appointed to Christ in this so that we live dedicated, devoted lives of righteousness 
and holiness and obedience. So really to, to, to focus us in here, to, to help keep our minds going in, in one direction, we kind of have this as our summary exhortation or our thesis statement, if you will. The people of God's possession, that's what we are, that's what's outlined in the text. The people of God's possession live out their hope in Christ by fearing God, by living righteously, by serving faithfully, and by giving themselves fully to God. So really what you hear in that is there's four exhortations, and they're, they're littered throughout the text. So we're not just going to take those one at a time, but those are the four exhortations that the Lord gives us if we are to be His people and to live out our salvation, that we fear Him, that we live righteously, that we serve faithfully, and that we give of ourselves fully to Him. As we pursue this, we must keep our minds ever fixed upon the Savior. And the text will do this for us in a glorious way in a few moments. So looking at the text, there's kind of three scenes. There, there's three phases, three focuses as we move through these verses. Verse 16 begins with, with what we can call the people's decision. The people's decision. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention, and he heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. So what is the people's decision? Very simply, very succinctly, they fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. But, but let's look at that. Let's look at this idea of fearing God. It says, then those who feared the Lord... So we can look at that and we can see the heart of these people, the, the heart that gained this favor of God, because as we progress through the text, we see that those who feared God had God's favor and His blessing placed upon them. So let's look at their heart, the heart of fearing God. We've talked about fearing the Lord throughout the text, throughout the, the book of Malachi. We see continually this idea of fearing the Lord, and so we need to be careful we need to be careful that we don't become desensitized to this command, that we don't become dull to hearing it because it keeps coming up. Rather, we must consider what the Lord's Word says about fearing Him. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's a corresponding, I think, New Testament statement to that. John 17, verse 3. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see the correlation. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of him is understanding. To know the Lord gives you understanding. That is the outworking of fearing God. There's this unbreakable link of knowing God and fearing Him. And we understand that that is our eternal duty. For all of eternity, we walk on those two paths of knowing God and fearing God. Fear of God leads to wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge of the Holy One is eternal life. It's not what you pursue in eternal life. It's what your eternal life finds its existence 
in. Knowing God by being face to face with Him. So that's what it means to fear God. And, and so that begs the question, do we fear God? Do we fear God? And you say, well, how do I know? How do I know if, if I fear the Lord properly? Look at the end of verse 16. It says that this book was written for those who fear His name and those who esteem his name. So well, I think one primary outworking of fearing God is that we esteem his name. We hold him in high regard. To hold the Lord in high regard means that we hold his word and his commands in high regard. It means that we come together to worship with a spirit of reverence because we know that we're coming into the presence of a holy God. So when you ask yourself, do I fear the Lord? Ask yourself, does my life show that I hold the Lord and His Word and His commands in highest regard and esteem? When you hold something in esteem, you submit to it. You listen to it. You seek after it. You desire to know more of it. Psalm 10 verses 3 and 4 say that the wicked boasts in his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. And all of his thoughts are that there is no God. That's what the wicked do. So what should the righteous do but the exact opposite? So the wicked boasts in his heart's desire. But what do we boast in? We boast in the Lord. We boast in the cross of Christ. We boast in the fact that his work is finished our redemption is complete, and we're left on this earth only to be conformed to His image and to be proclaiming His gospel as long as He gives us breath and life. Our lives, if we fear God, are ordered by and oriented around His Word and His commands. And we boast in the Lord. He is our glory. He is our hope. He is our greatest joy. So that's the people's heart, but they also are, are driven by an action here in the text, and we'll, we'll have to flesh it out a little bit to, to understand, but there's an action of the people here. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. You may hear that and think, okay, well, I've spoken to plenty of people today, so, so we're on the right track, but we've got to press further than that. Psalm 66, verse 16 the psalmist says, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. Not just say, come and let's talk. Come and let's hang out together. He says, come if you fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. I will tell you how he has won my eternal redemption by giving me a new heart and causing me to repent of my sin and to turn from my sin and to desire to please him. Those who fear the Lord have this as their choice activity. They come together to exalt God. They come together to praise His name, to magnify His great works. And so, yes, this is a corporate activity. That's why we gather together week after week is to declare the praise of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. When we gather together with the Lord's people for fellowship, this should be our activity, this should be our desire to tell one another what the Lord has done in your soul. 
That means you've got to be actively walking with the Lord. The Lord's not going to be doing a work in your soul if you are not spending time with Him and in His Word. This should be a day-to-day activity in your home. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. You may know these verses well. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you shall teach these words to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall talk about the things of the Lord. And that command really is repeated again in the New Testament. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Does the word of Christ dwell richly within you? Does the word of the Lord fill your heart? Does it fill and overflow your mind and your thoughts and your deeds and your words? Does it fill you so much that you desire to share with others what the Lord has done for your soul? The people had God-fearing hearts. Those God-fearing hearts led to, to action. They led to them to to speak of what the Lord had done for them. And then there's this response, as we continue on in verse 16, this response from the Lord. It says, And he gave attention, and he heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear him and who esteem his name. So what is this book of remembrance? We need to understand what is that talking to. There, there's some small line of thought that maybe he's talking about the book of life, the Lamb's book of life where the names are written of those who are in Christ. And I don't think that's the case here. This book of remembrance, rather, is probably written as the Lord's book where he remembers and recalls the deeds that you have done. Recall that when we stand before Christ, everyone will be judged. Not just the sinner, not just the saint, but all will be judged by Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the Lord says, I'm going to write this book of remembrance. You are faithful. You are rightly fearing me. And so I'm going to write those in my book. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, these deeds will be recalled. Dear friends, that's why we pursue good works. Because the Lord commands it, and we don't want to stand before Christ and have only sin to be read and reported from our Savior. The Lord says, I'm going to remember even these good deeds. Calvin writes of this, that this should show the Lord's people not to doubt that their repentance is regarded by God. If you struggle with assurance of faith, this should be a great confidence for you. Because the Lord says, those deeds are written in my book of remembrance. I will recall that faith that you displayed. I will recall that obedience that you have displayed. So take heart, saint, because there is a book of remembrance. And isn't that a kindness 
of the Lord. Think about the context here. These people, because again, the Lord's instruction has been to all of Israel. The people have been really bowled over by, by the Lord's rebuke, by his reproof, by him coming and telling them that they are headed towards judgment. Now, I think there's a, a clear separation between these in verse 16 through 18 and what we've seen previously in Malachi. I think these are those who were always faithful because, again, this, is, this book is coming through in one fell swoop, the prophecy. And so there were those who were unfaithful that we've seen up to this point. And then there's these here that are faithful. But think about what may have been on their mind. They loved the Lord, they served the Lord, they were righteous and faithful, and yet they hear of these rebukes, and you have to wonder if they, if they fear that they may be swept away with the judgment of the wicked. Or even further, they probably hear these things if they're in Christ, and, and they receive them with this humble introspection, this humble self-examination where though they're being faithful, they hear all these commands of the Lord and they're fearful and they are repenting because they're not perfect, because they have not achieved the, the state of eternal glory where they walk in perfection. And so they hear these commands of the Lord and they're rebuked and they are corrected and they are reproved and there's this crushing weight. And it's a good crushing weight because the Lord does crush us under the weight of sin. But then he builds us up in the hope of Christ. We rest in the security of our salvation, but surely you can understand how these people may have wondered how far would the Lord's judgment go. Think about what's happening in our nation right now. Uh, it's clear that the Lord has handed over this nation be judged for its wickedness. Now, is, is there a path to repentance? Sure, the Lord can restore and can rebuild. If you doubt that, look at the history of Israel. But we are handed over as a nation in our sin. And if you doubt this, you really need to think through it, that the church will fall into some of the hardships caused by that judgment. The church, the true church is not living in unrepentant sin. But the church is going to be purged. The church is going to be purified. And when the culture continues to go from bad to worse, surely hardship will come with that fade into sin and wickedness and abomination. But take heart. Because though hardship will come... Saints, we know that there's the book of remembrance, that the Lord remembers your honest and your faithful and your obedient deeds. So I think this leads to the question, are, are you living in such a way, are you fearing and esteeming and serving the Lord in such a way that the deeds written in the Lord's book of remembrance are what you want to be read by Christ at that judgment? Does the way that you live, when the, when the Lord judges you for your deeds, whether good or bad, is the way that you're living what you want the Lord to judge you for on that final day? If you walk in righteousness, you can answer in the affirmative. 
But as you battle sin, you know that those are things that you want to be stripped away and taken away. And you want to repent because you want to walk in holiness and please the Lord. So this is the people's decision. They fear God and they turn to Him and they come to Him with humble and repentant hearts. And then as we continue to verse 17, the, the Lord responds the Lord gives attention to this reverence of the people. And so we want to consider here the Lord's declaration. The Lord's declaration, verse 17, the Lord says, They will be mine on that day I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So not only does the Lord give attention to the good deeds of these people, but he responds to them with a promise. Dear friends, it is a glorious promise, a glorious promise that we will be his possession. We will be his possession and be treated as though we are his sons. The, the son received all of the inheritance in this day, so we are all treated as sons of the Most High. And in seeing this, we'll get to it in a moment, but there is a shining and glorious pointer here to the work. Christ. But let's begin. The Lord says, they will be mine on that day that I prepare my own possession. They will be mine. Isaiah 43 verse 1, the Lord says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. There will come a day, dear friends, when the wicked are cut off. The wicked are cut off for all eternity, and they are set apart, they are sent to their eternal condemnation to bear the just punishment of their soul in hell. But on that day, there will be a remnant. There will be those who are spared, those who are made up of the Lord's redeemed. And on that day, we will understand more fully this idea that we are His possession for His glory. That is what he saves us to, to be his own possession. Psalm 95 says that he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. He knows us, and we know him because we are his. Again, that's that picture that we saw earlier, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me. We know him because we belong to him. And no one can snatch us out of his hand, and the Father who has given us to the Son is greater than all and no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. There is great assurance in the fact that we are God's possession. So he says, they will be my own when I prepare my own possession. And then he says, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Psalm 103 says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his child, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
We read Romans 8, verse 15 earlier, that we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but rather a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We, we are grafted in to God's family. We are made to be His people. He is our Father, and that is that close and intimate relationship between a father and a beloved son. So this is the Lord's declaration to those who fear His name. We'll be His possession. We'll be His people. He will be our Father. And we will be His sons. So that begs the question, how does the Lord do this? How does the Lord not have to, how does the Lord say that He will not spare us as a man spares his own son who serves him? How are we brought into God's family? He's able to have compassion. He is able to spare us, dear friends, only because, as Paul writes in Romans 8, only because he did not spare his own son. He did not spare him, but he gave him up. He delivered him over for us all. The Lord spares you his wrath. Because he spared his son, none. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might die to sin and be made alive in righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. By his wounds you are made whole. Romans 8.3 says that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God himself did by sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. You were treated as a son because Christ was condemned for your sin. And if you understand that he was condemned for your sin, how do you continue to walk in it? How do you revel in it? How do you glory in it? How do you love that which was nailed to your Savior upon the cross? Flee from your sin. Be the Lord's choice possession. Know that you are spared the wrath due your sin because Christ paid your penalty in full. Do you understand that? Do you grasp that and take hold of that? That the penalty of your sin without reservation was laid upon Christ. For every sin you've committed, you have earned eternal punishment. And all of that punishment because of the beauty and the glory and the precious worth of Christ. All of that punishment was taken in full by Christ at the cross. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel that sinners receive grace only because Christ received none. Such great hope in that. Turn back with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I want to just take a couple moments to, to flesh out a little bit of this idea about being the Lord's sons and, and what it does in our lives. Um, we, we could read a lot there. I just want to focus in on verses 1 through 6. 1 John 3 verses 1 through 6, and we'll be brief here. The beloved apostle writes, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children 
God. And such we are for this world, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. If you know the love of God, the world does not know you because you are separated and cut off from the world. Beloved, he continues, we are now children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have this hope in Christ, you purify your life because you want to be like your Savior. Verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, verse 6 must be connected to verse 4 to understand that we're talking about the practice of sin. No one who abides in Christ practices, lives in habitual sin. Because when you see Christ, he changes you. When you know Christ, he transforms you. And I'm getting way ahead of myself because there's still time to come back to that. But we must understand that life in Christ, living in this love that the Lord has bestowed upon us in him, means that we live a changed and purified life. So this is the Lord's declaration. We've seen the people's decision, the Lord's declaration. And then in verse 18, we see the prophet's distinction. The prophet's distinction. It says, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. This is the distinction that the Lord makes between the righteous and the and the wicked. You remember throughout this, the people have questioned God's justice. They've said that he's not just and that they, they think that the Lord allows the wicked to prosper. But the Lord says, you will be able to distinguish. The ESV translation here says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You will see and know a plain distinction. The purpose of the Lord here is to continue this statement from verse 17. We are His possession because He takes us out of the world. He draws us out of the world so that the world is no longer in us. God's people do not look like the world. We're separate from it. We are in it, but we are not of it. This really is the, the, the so what of this passage. We could hear of the glorious work and promises of the Lord in verse 16 and 17, but if we don't come to verse 18 and let it drive home and apply in our lives, we've missed the point. So this is where the Lord makes the distinction between the righteous and the wicked and those who serve the Lord and those who do not serve Him. So we have those who are righteous and they serve the Lord and we must see that positional righteousness results in and is displayed in practical righteousness and service to the Lord. Okay, so if, if we are counted righteous, if we are adopted into God's family, we are counted righteous in Christ. 
but that results in a changed life. We are the Lord's possession through Christ. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The work is done in Christ and in Christ alone. We are saved by faith alone and through grace alone. But we are saved and set apart to be his people, to be his possession, who are, as Titus 2.14 continues, who are zealous for good deeds. We are his possession so that he might make us zealous for good deeds. When Christ savingly possesses someone, he changes them. When he savingly possesses you, he transforms your heart because he takes out your cold and dead heart and puts within you a new heart of flesh that is full of the truth and that is full of the spirit of the living God himself. Think about the rest of Titus chapter 2, a, a familiar passage. Paul says, The grace of God has appeared to all men to teach us and to instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. When the Lord possesses you, He changes you. When the Lord possesses you, your life is distinguished and set apart from the world. How do you know that you're living this set-apart life? Well, for one, the Spirit of the Lord will testify in your heart because He will draw you to repentance for your sins. But I think in the text we can also see that it's through what you serve, through what you are devoted to. Think about Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. It says, Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. So fear the Lord and serve Him. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You fear God, you walk in righteousness, and you serve the Lord. Ask yourself, am I a servant of the Lord or am I a servant of the worldly things of this life? Do I die to myself or do I walk in the passions of my flesh? The alternative to this righteous living is fleshly, wicked, unrighteous living. It's those who are wicked and those who do not serve the Lord. So this should sound, that, that alternative should sound the alarm to us. It should come to us as a warning to, to help us consider what is the alternative to righteous living. It's not that uh, we'll, we'll kind of meander down the middle of the road and, and maybe we get towards the end of our life and we'll turn towards Christ. No, there, there's two paths, the path of righteousness and the path of, path of wickedness. You're on one or you're on the other. You serve the Lord or you serve yourself. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For you will either love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you will despise the other. The Lord will not share His possession. Your life will either reflect that you belong to the Lord, or your life will reflect that you love your sin 
and you serve the flesh, and you serve your father, the devil. So what does your life reflect? To whom or to what do you show your devotion by the way that you live? Where do you give the best of your strength, the best of your time, the best of your energy? The Lord will not share His possession with another so, so in a way, you're either all in for the Lord or you're all in for the flesh. You can't serve two masters. You love one and hate the other, and you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. To whom do you serve? To whom do you give your life? Really, we can pull to a close there. We've seen the people's decision. They fear the Lord, and in fearing the Lord, they come together to acknowledge and to proclaim what the Lord has done in their lives. And what is the Lord's response? He declares to them that I will write this book of remembrance to remember your good deeds, and you will be my possession. You will be my people. I will treat you as a son. And how does he treat us as a son? Only in that he didn't spare his only begotten son. That's really the, the climactic point of this text is to realize that all of this favor of the Lord comes only because of that work of Christ. All of this favor of God comes only because Christ bore your sin in his body on the tree. That is how you know the favor of God. That is how you are His favored, blessed possession. So there's the decision, the declaration, and the distinction. The righteous who serve the Lord, the wicked who do not serve the Lord. Does your life reflect righteousness and devoted faithfulness to the Lord? Or does your life reflect that you are dead in your sins? As Joshua said, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Make the choice today. Are you a servant of the Most High or are you going to continue to serve the flesh? Will you serve the Lord and die to yourself? Or will you serve your flesh and be condemned for all eternity? May we be like Joshua. May we have hearts that that devotedly say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do that by walking in the Spirit, walking according to God's Word, and walking with a humble heart that desires His glory above all things. So may we serve the Lord with gladness. May we come into His presence with thanksgiving. And may we devote our lives to serve and to glorify Him in all that we do. Let's close in prayer.